Hi there, my name is Jeffrey Lynn. I'm one of the pastors at Trinity Church Adelaide, uh, which is a great reminder for us, I think, this morning that we're part of a network of churches dedicated to reaching our city with the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Uh, can I encourage you, please, to have that handout that uh, you were told about downloaded and preferably printed out in front of you. There'll be a space for you to take notes as we go along. Uh, and it'll give you an outline as to what I'm going to cover today in the first of our series on the doctrine of election. A couple of things as we begin, just to kind of orient us to this series. Uh, the first is, I do want to acknowledge from the outset that this series on the doctrine of election is going to be hard for some of us to hear. It's going to be hard for some of us to hear because the doctrine of election says that God chooses some to be saved, but not everyone. God chooses some to be saved, but not everyone. Uh, and instinctively, that sounds unfair to us. Uh, it feels discriminatory. Uh, to use the buzzword of our times, it feels non-inclusive. And if you've tuned in today as someone who's not a believer, well, I suspect for me to begin this way, well, it hardly paints God in a positive light. I thought I'd tell you how one of my three teenage children reacted when I told them about this series that I was preparing. Uh, I won't tell you which one it was, but here's what he said. Um, he said, oh, that will be a little ray of sunshine. Well, second thing to say as we begin, um, uh, to let you in on a secret, this is really just one long talk going to be given over three weeks. Uh, and what I'm going to do in this talk is move from the less controversial to the most. Um, now, that's actually just a cunning way for me to ensure that you keep tuning in each week. Um, and if you miss a talk, please do make sure you catch up uh, in the week as it passes by. Each of the talks in this series, I've adopted a similar structure, and you'll see it on the handout for today. I'm going to talk about a big idea. I'm then going to try and address some of the questions that are raised by that big idea before finally trying to talk about how we might respond because I realise that one of the dangers of this series, this deeply theological series, is that it might come across as sounding a bit intellectual, whereas God's word always shapes the way in which we live. Uh, you'll see, in fact, from the overview of the series at the top of the page there, the titles of each of the talks, they tell you that we're going to spend twice as much time talking about God as we do talking about ourselves. It seems to me that's about the right balance for us to strike. Uh, and the third and final thing to say, just as we begin, is that uh, I want to just acknowledge the obvious, particularly for the members of this church. Uh, this is a different kind of series from what we're used to uh, in the Trinity Network of Churches. Uh, that is, I'm not going to work through just one passage each week, line by line. Rather, we're trying to see what the Bible as a whole has to say on a particular topic. Uh, to do that, I'm going to use some theological terms. I don't worry, I'll explain them each time. But I'm going to use those theological terms because what that will do is help you to access the great books out there that are written on this topic so that you can go further in your thinking. And of course, each week, as the format allows, we're going to have a Q&A uh, because uh, we want to keep urging you to, as you hear me say lots of times, to be like the Bereans to be like the Bereans. Uh, you'll see the reference there to Acts chapter 17 on your handout. It's a reminder that as Paul made his way around the ancient Near East, uh, the Berean Jews in Acts 17.11 were commended as being honourable because they tested what they heard from Paul against the Scriptures. Uh, and as you hear me often say, if they could test an apostle against God's word, how much more so must you, your pastor or your home group leader? 
Anyway, enough of the introductions. Let's get into this series then on the doctrine of election. And today's big idea, let me lead straight off with it uh, so there's no misunderstanding. Here's the starting point for our whole series and it's the blank for you to fill in on your handout. The big idea, the creator is entitled to do whatever he wants with his creation. The creator is entitled to do whatever he wants with his creation. The first of our readings from Romans chapter 9, we're going to dig into a little more detail in week 3 because it's the key passage on this doctrine of election. But today I want us to focus just on two verses right in the middle, verses 20 and 21. Let me read them out again. They're printed on your handout. Romans 9 verse 20. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? The title of this talk, you'll see, is called The Potter and the Clay, God's Unfettered Sovereignty. God's Unfettered Sovereignty. Now, that word sovereign is an old-fashioned term that's normally applied to a monarch, to a king or a queen. And it's used to describe the fact that within his or her realm, the monarch has absolute power, absolute authority. And so the starting point for this series is to say that the creator is entitled to do whatever he wants with his creation. You notice the language there, it's the language of rights. It's more than just the creator is allowed to do whatever he wants, more than the creator is at liberty to do what he wants, this is saying the creator is entitled, he has the right to do whatever he wants with what he has made. And of the many passages in scripture, uh, this one here, Romans chapter 9, it's the most blunt and the most direct because it likens God to being like a potter and us being like clay. And it says that the potter can has the right to use some clay for special purposes. Uh, think perhaps of making a grand sculpture to use the pottery image. But equally, that potter has the right to use some clay for common use, functional kitchenware. And yet here's the point. Different plans for different lumps of rock cast no moral aspersion on the character of the potter. Let me give you a different example. Uh, It's a bit superficial, but most of us aren't potters by trade. So what I would like you to do is consider for a moment what people do with Lego. Now, uh, I should say from at this point, I'm not from South Australia, so I don't call it Lego. Uh, Actually, for the record, neither do the Danish. So I think there's a hint there. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, When given a box of Lego... Some people choose to follow the instructions to make the creation meticulously according to what, you know, they're meant to, whereas other people, well, let's call them the free spirits. They love to let their imagination run wild. But whether you're the first or the second category, the point is it's yours. So you're entitled to do whatever you want with it. And whatever you choose, that doesn't mean that you're a good person or a bad person. 
Now, I realize, of course, this is a somewhat limited illustration um, because even if you and I own the Lego, well, we didn't actually make it in the first place. Um, And I realize, of course, that in this illustration, in Romans 9 at least, in saying God is a potter and we are like clay, it's basically calling us lumps of rock. And that doesn't feel like a particularly high view of humanity. Is it saying that you and I are no more than puppets on a string dancing to the puppet master's tune? Are we no more than actors in a play reading out predetermined lines? Uh, Yes, those are good and important questions for us to raise. They address the extent to which we ought to be held accountable for our decisions. And we'll return to that in later weeks. But for today, let me simply ask you, what's the alternative to God being completely unfettered in his sovereignty? Wouldn't that mean, if he were in some way constrained, that he was subject to something else or to someone else? By which very definition, he would no longer be sovereign. Uh, In my personal opinion, there's not much point in worshipping a mostly powerful God. A couple of reasons for that. Uh, Firstly, it seems to me if you're going to invoke a God, if you're going to call on a God, you want that God to be very powerful, preferably all-powerful. I mean, after all, who wants a second-string minor deity on your side? Witness, for example, the constant bickering amongst the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, always jostling for supremacy. But more importantly, if you're going to give your life to serve a God... Well, I think you want to know that that God is supreme. You want to be sure that you have thrown your lot in with one whose will will be done, whose kingdom will come, and whose name will be hallowed throughout all the earth. Now, to put that slightly more positively, speaking of God's unfettered sovereignty, ask the question, why did God choose to make us at all? Well, notice what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. I printed the verse there for you on your handout. Why did God choose to make us at all? Ephesians chapter 2, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul is saying, you and I are God's handiwork. Even if we are clay in the potter's hands, we are God's workmanship. We've been made by an all-powerful God for a purpose. In fact, that purpose there in Ephesians 2, they are the good works that he's prepared for us in advance to do. But I want to say today that I think that's so much of a better alternative than what the world has to offer as to why we are here. Because all the world can say is that, well, to be blunt, You and I I are no more than progressive upgrades on previous versions. Well, one last time, I'm not naive. Um, I do realise that even if God is all-powerful, and even if he does have a purpose for his handiwork, that we'll need to address the specific question of our choices and whether or not we ought to bear accountability for our decisions. Although, let me say this much. If I am held accountable for my decisions, if 
my salvation is up to me, then actually I reckon I'm in trouble because consistently my track record says I make poor decisions. Actually, at the end of the day, I think I prefer that the buck doesn't stop with me, uh, that it stops with someone else, and ideally with someone who is powerful and predictable and good. Now, because unconstrained power in our world is so often misused, you and I find it almost impossible to imagine absolute power not corrupting absolutely. And so that raises for us serious questions about God's character. And we move then to point two, and the questions to consider, here's the big one for today. Is God arbitrary? Is God God arbitrary in the way in which he uses some for noble purposes and others for different things? How does God decide which lumps of clay he will use for which purpose? Is there any rhyme or reason to his choices? Or does he just make decisions on a whim? Uh, Not that this has ever been my case, but I would imagine that the most terrifying aspect of working for a dictatorial megalomaniac like Pol Pot or Mugabe or Kim Jong-un or any of the millions who've littered history, I imagine the worst thing about working for them is their tendency to just fly off the handle and change their mind without warning. That is, their unpredictability is what makes them dangerous. So let me give you today two assurances, two assurances about how God chooses to exercise his unfettered sovereignty. And again, here are the blanks for you to fill in. Firstly, God is always constrained by his promises. God is always constrained by his promises. God is predictable and faithful, but not to some external standard or higher power. There is none. Rather, God is faithful to his promises. God is always bound by his word, which means we can be 100% confident that our all-powerful creator is never capricious. He is never corruptible. He is never prone to mood swings or bad days. He is entirely and in every way trustworthy and faithful to his promises. As one example, take Deuteronomy chapter 7, which I printed on your handout there. Deuteronomy 7 verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. What Moses is telling the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7 is that this generation God chose because he made a promise to their ancestors. And that's why it says God shows his covenant love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. 
In fact, actually, there, there's a hint of the interplay between God's sovereign choice and our accountability for our response. We'll come back to that in week three. Now, realize, of course, that doesn't fully answer the question as to why God chose their ancestors in the first place. Although, did you notice in verse 7, there was a reference to the Israelites being, well, not more numerous than the other peoples? Uh, It's a hint, even here, I think, that God doesn't just choose the impressive, the powerful, the significant, and the strong. Rather, God chooses unexpectedly. And that leads then to my second comment. Uh, At the top of the second page of your handout, how do we respond to God being arbitrary? Well, firstly, God is always constrained by his promises. Secondly, then, God tends to choose unexpectedly. God tends to choose unexpectedly. As we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we come to the Apostle Paul's deeply comforting words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Have a look with me there. Again, printed on your handout, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were human, wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Now this passage tells us something critical about us. It says that there's no place for pride or boasting in the Christian community. There'll be enormous ramifications that we're going to tease out next week. But far more importantly, this passage tells us something about God. And this is deeply comforting. Because 1 Corinthians 1 is saying that by unexpectedly choosing weak things, not the high achievers, we see that God leans towards mercy, not rewarding merit. God leans towards mercy, not rewarding merit. Our God is a God who longs to help those who cannot help themselves. He doesn't help those who think they can help themselves because they usually don't bother asking. And in so doing, God not only removes any charge of nepotism or favoritism as if God only picks the impressive. Uh, You remember, don't you? Maybe you don't. But you remember that horrible moment in high school PE classes where you're all lined up and they appoint two captains and they each choose and you desperately hope you won't be the last person chosen because it proves that you're the least valuable person in the class. Rather, it confirms that everyone is welcome if only we will come with open hands begging for help. Because our all-powerful God chooses, not because he needs us in any way, but because we need him. Have you considered, have you ever considered just how deeply reassuring it is to know that God has no need for anything you and I might bring? I understand that's kind of a blow to our ego and our pride. But if God is not needy in any way, if God is complete in himself and totally satisfied with himself, 
and utterly secure about himself because he lacks nothing, then you can be completely certain that he hasn't chosen on you, chosen you because he is counting on you for something. That is a terrible burden to bear. Rather, he has chosen you because he loves you and he longs to bless you. Uh, to return to my opening question, why would the all-powerful creator make us? The answer the Bible consistently gives is that it is to bless us and to share with us what is his by right. And if I can finish this section by giving you an illustration that is admittedly limited, but nevertheless insightful, the best reason to have or adopt children is that you might share with them what is yours. It's not so that they might further your interests or fulfill your dreams. Heaven help any child whose parents are like that. It seems to me that this is the kind of God I want to worship, the kind of God I want to adore. One who is all-powerful, unfettered in sovereignty, and yet nevertheless leans towards mercy and not rewarding merit. Uh, That's why Jesus' parable of the workers, that second reading that you heard, is so wonderful. It's wonderful because of what it says about God. I mean, take, for example, verse 15, which I printed there on your handout. Here, the landowner asks, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? That that parable, that story that Jesus tells, it poses a cutting diagnostic question. See, it asks us, with which of the workers do you most resonate? And of course, the problem is that for most of us, as we hear that story, for most of us, we think, well, I resonate with the ones who are shortchanged, who worked all day and got paid the same amount as those who came in at the last minute. The problem is that inevitably shapes the way we think about God. When actually, the story is meant to be primarily about God's generosity. The creator is entitled to do whatever he wants with his creation. So what does he want to do? What does he long to do? He longs to bless us because he leans towards mercy. Well, a big idea, some questions to consider. Let me wrap it up. How might we respond? Short answer today, the blank fear to fill in. How might we respond? We are to praise our creator. We are to praise our creator. And we've seen today that the God who's unfettered in sovereignty nevertheless chooses to bless us which means, I think, that he is a being who is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of his name being magnified throughout the universe. Uh, This is something that uh, I work with university students. Uh, This is something that the university students who actually make something in their degree really understand and grasp. The final year engineering students with their projects or a design student or maybe a composer. And of course, for the rest of us, you know, for the lawyers and the accountants and the consultants out there, and I was all of those at one point in time, we instinctively get why creation is praiseworthy because we're always talking about adding value, as if that in and of itself would be worthy of praise. It is right 
to admire the works of your hands. A job well done in the garden. A renovation that's successfully completed. Just as when you behold something that is wonderfully made, it is right to praise the creator. It is right to heap praise and accolades on an architect when a new skyscraper is finally unveiled. So Revelation chapter 4, verse 9, on your handout. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is a picture of why the God who is unfettered in sovereignty, who has made us, is worthy of eternal praise. Now let me ask you, does the thought of never-ending praise sound boring to you? Do you worry that this picture here of all that falling down before the throne and worshipping will kind of get a little bit boring after a while, maybe after 10,000 years of going, holy, 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 God splat? Do you you feel like that might actually, the novelty might wear off? You know, kind of like, it's a bit facetious, but kind of like, a never-ending Mexican wave. Well, if so, can I ask you please, just for a moment, to imagine the experience of finally winning a premiership flag. Now, at this point, I'm going to make all sorts of rude comments about the Crows or Port, but, you know, I don't need to do that. Um, You know what I mean, though? The thought of never-ending celebration, if it is finally realised, a celebration that even the fans get to participate in, not just the players. How do you apply praise in your life? You'll see at the bottom of the handout, I've given you a for discussion question, something perhaps to reflect on in your household. What might you praise God for? Let me give you a hint. Please resist the temptation to dwell on all the things you desire but don't have. Instead, start by thanking God for what he has made us for. We are his handiwork, created to do good works which he has prepared for us in advance to do. And I, for one, cannot wait to do them. So, here's my final thought for today. Not only did God make us to share in his glory, not only did he prepare for us good works in advance to do, This for me is the most praiseworthy aspect of our God, that even when we turned away from him, even after we told him to leave us alone, still he remade us, refashioned us, rebirthed us in Christ. What a wonderful way for him to use his power. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade.